Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm joined today by my friend, Monica Ellis. She's the Chief Executive Officer and a founding member of the Global Environment and Technology Foundation, GETF. It was founded in 1988. It's a leading 501c3 nonprofit organization with a mission to accelerate sustainable development through partnerships that deliver impact at scale. They design and manage high-impact public-private partnerships improving the lives of over 14 million people in over 100 countries through water access, sanitation and hygiene, health system strengthening, entrepreneurship, women's empowerment, sustainable agriculture, and climate resilience. GETF also serves as the secretariat for two high-impact water coalitions, the Global Water Challenge and the U.S. Water Partnership. Monica has worked globally on natural resource and economic development issues, focusing on clean water, climate, technology, health, and economic empowerment. She's a member or advisor to several boards, including the GTF Board, Water for People, the Johns Hopkins University Global Water Advisory Board, the U.S. Water Partnership, the Graham Sustainability Institute at the University of Michigan, the Global Water Institute at the Ohio State University, and Ketos. She also serves as CEO of the Global Water Challenge. And on this podcast, we're going to be discussing the most pressing issues of the water agenda and having a conversation about the focus on the impact of cross-cutting issues such as climate change and gender on the water sector. Monica, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us today. Thank you, Dan. It's always a pleasure to be with you. I appreciate it. Thanks. So, Monica, water is foundational to all development and economic growth. What are some of the most pressing challenges to global water security today? Thanks, Dan. Well, water, as you know, is ubiquitous. We have to all realize that water is kind of ingredient number one in our lives. It's foundational to our existence, and it affects just so many other issues. As people, our destiny, either here in the U.S. or anywhere in the world, is shaped by water. And it's so fundamental that the quality, the availability, the reliability, and the affordability of water determines the very kind of life that we're going to have. In 2030, you know, just eight short years from now, nearly half of the world's population is going to be facing severe water stress. And this is at a time when global water demand is going to more than double that of supply. So already we know that nearly 4 billion people are experiencing severe water scarcity for at least one month each year, and that number is just expected to grow over the next decade. As we've talked about in the past, the crisis is fueled by largely population growth. Of course, you have urbanization, you have poor agriculture practices, increasing demand, and and climate change. And then the COVID-19 pandemic has also served as a force multiplier for this water crisis. And it's also a stark reminder of just how critical the role of clean water is to health, not just for hydration, but for hand washing. So we need water for this frontline response. Leadership is really needed from all sectors. It's going to require collective action to address it. So our foundation and Global Water Challenge, we work throughout the world on these issues with a real focus on helping marginalized communities gain access to water. 
And in Africa, for example, we're working in over 4,000 communities, helping address every type of water challenge. Understanding that global picture, it's important to look at water as a hyper-local issue. Each community is unique from cities whose water and sanitation services have stopped because the population exceeds the capacity of the utility to serve it or to very remote villages that lack basic infrastructure of any kind. You talked about climate as a key challenge. Most definitely the climate crisis manifests as a water crisis. And the most profound effect that we see from global warming is how it affects the water cycle and how that impact and that cycle affects humanity's potential. We have extreme weather events rising, and then also it is aggravating the water scarcity situation with longer dry spells and growing numbers of droughts. It also exacerbates pollution of both surface water and groundwater. A second challenge, and we're facing this in the U.S. too, is poor infrastructure or no infrastructure. We need to upweight investment in water institutions and infrastructure globally, including here in the U.S. We talked about urbanization, but this mass of people that are moving into major and secondary cities, particularly when they're looking for work and in developing countries, it's overwhelming the utilities and the service authorities. You see a lot of flight in the United States, too, out of rural areas to more urban areas, leaving the utilities serving those rural areas in danger of not having enough revenue to survive. Governance, another huge challenge. Governance is required to have fair and equitable water use and management in a community, and it's probably the foundation of addressing the water challenge is having that governance right in a community. We need additional business models and technology that would help us enable net positive water, which maybe we'll talk about in a minute. So those are some of the key challenges, and it's fixable, but it's going to take a lot of investment and a lot of collective action and cooperation amongst groups that don't typically cooperate that well together. You recently spoke at a CSIS roundtable focused on women's empowerment and water access. Could you explain how limited water access disproportionately affects women and how addressing water access lifts communities and economies? Sure. Thanks for asking. That was a great roundtable. Water is the common thread, really, to alleviate barriers to women's empowerment in communities of need around the world. At least that's what we've found in our work, and we have studied the issue quite extensively. So women typically have fewer opportunities, including those related to education, employment. They have greater health risks. They have more responsibility to the home and sometimes diminished voices in their communities. So when women and girls have access to safe water and sanitation, they're healthier, they're stronger, they're safer, they're more educated, they have the opportunity for employment, and they're more empowered. Our theory of change on this is based on evidence that water really uniquely catalyzes a shift toward women taking greater control over their lives at a personal, household, and community level, and this in turn uplifts communities. We collaborated with USAID, Coca-Cola, and Ipsos, the leading research firm, to create something called the Ripple Effect Study. And that study really validated those findings, that water is this common thread to alleviating barriers to women's empowerment. Some of the ripple effects that we found where there were noticeable improvements were in the areas of health, greater food security and nutrition, education, time savings, which enabled opportunities to go generate an income, more safety and security because you're not walking long distances or vulnerable in collecting water, increased leadership skills, and then shifting roles and norms within the community. One of the findings that I think is always so interesting is that over 90% of the women in our study who use their time savings to pursue income 
they used that time to generate entrepreneurial activities and reported an increase in income. And we know that women reinvest their income into communities at a higher rate than men. So it's very important for the growth and the sustainability of the community. One of the things that I think is really pressing, Monica, is developing countries are going to bear the brunt of the impacts of climate change. How do we ensure that the water agenda and WASH objectives adapt to these changes? And what role can water initiatives play in climate mitigation strategies? That's a good question. Well, like we talked about at the top of the podcast, the climate crisis is a water crisis. So there is a real risk that low-income countries are, are pushed into this vicious cycle of worsening poverty if they can't recover from one disaster before the next one strikes, from extreme weather events, from drought, from floods. Communities with high levels of poverty, poor governance structures, and communities that are more dependent on farming and fishing are certainly going to have greater vulnerability to increasing flood droughts and sea level rise. Some of the things that water initiatives can offer as a frontline response are this idea of really working at a basin level between business and government so that each entity can play to their strengths. For example, we work with Coca-Cola and Cargill, Starbucks, Ford, a number of great companies in a range of watersheds around the world to help deliver climate-smart water programs. This might include nature-based solutions where you have better options for water storage. You're protecting the watershed. You're restoring it through sustainable management and practices and sustainable ag practices. We also work on utility strengthening. So if you think, Dan, about who has that frontline response for providing clean water access to communities, it's utilities. And they are stretched to their capacity, just like they are here in the United States. And so they need some help sometimes in finding business models to serve low-income people. Sometimes they need help with leak repair, promoting water savings or water-efficient technologies and approaches. That is one of the things that we champion as well. Women's empowerment. Also, we really try to address this issue through the lens of women because the research shows that when we target investments in women, we get this huge multiplier impact for economic health, educational, and other societal gains. That's kind of where things are going. I do see more companies heading in the direction of net positive water. Maybe a decade or so ago, companies like Coca-Cola and others committed to replenish all the water they use in their operations. What you're seeing now is this shift toward net positive commitments, which means they're actively taking steps to leave the world better through their business. Paul Pullman, former Unilever CEO, Andrew Winston, they just have released a great book on net positive thinking that really is calling on companies to regenerate our planet and renew our societies by fixing the world's problems and not creating them. So for this net positive framing for water can really not only inform how a company manages water within its own operations, but also how it interacts with its basin, its ecosystems, and its community more broadly. So I think that this is a real trend that is going to become the norm in the next decade. Remind folks the name of that book, because that sounds like a really interesting book. Net Positive. Okay, so we know that water security is vital to the growth of nations. What's it going to take to galvanize more funding for water infrastructure? That's a great question. Well, given the importance of water to economic growth, one would think it would be at the top of the agenda, right? But sadly, it isn't. But the OECD had a really great policy paper on this called Financing Water, Investing in Sustainable Growth. And I highly recommend it to folks. You can find it on the OECD website. 
One of their suggestions, and I'll go through a few, was really to raise the profile of water infrastructure on the international political agenda and within the governance community. So this requires painting a clear picture of what success would look like if we get it right in terms of the financing, and then also what societal benefits it would bring back if we invest adequately. A second thing they called for is to improve the evidence base with analytical work on how to overcome barriers to investment. So there we need data, we need visualization, we need to take all the great tech and data tools and analysis tools that we have and really improve the evidence base and show decision makers and investors what the opportunity is. They also recommended that we push the boundaries of traditional thinking about financing water-related investment. So what are some of the new models that are working in various contexts? We need to illuminate those blended finance models. You're seeing some innovative work that's happening. And also just communicating a powerful evidence-based plan for investment that has compelling outcomes and educates those in power to act. Those are some of the things that we've seen being called for that I think offer some ideas about financing infrastructure. But, you know, if we get it right, WaterAid recently provided some estimates that it would take $229 billion each year by 2030 to fund the total capital and rehabilitation needs in low- and middle-income countries for WASH. But what they found is that those investments in universal access to toilets and taps would also unlock billions of dollars for the economies in the future. That leads to greater productivity. It could be up to as much as $86 billion a year in greater productivity and reduced health costs for societies. If you had just basic hygiene facilities, it would bring an extra $45 billion per year, and then household taps would generate an additional $37 billion globally. So getting there kind of requires unlocking the capabilities and investments from different sectors through blended finance approaches and also integrated programming that deliver multiple co-benefits linked to water. So can you repeat the price tag that you referenced? Is it $220 billion? $229 billion each year up until 2030 to fund the total capital and rehabilitation needs for, this is just for water access, okay? This is to keep toilets and taps and hand washing and make it available in low and middle income countries. So that's not the developed world number, that's low and middle income countries. And it's not all foreign aid that's gonna cover that bill. A lot of it's probably taxes generated in these societies, right? Domestic resource mobilization can fund a lot of it. There's some role for the private sector in this in terms of financing water utilities, et cetera? There is in financing water utilities. It's in developing products and technologies that use less water, for example, or that empower the consumer to have maybe a toilet, a tap that is more effective with less output when there's less water available. You know, you have to think about those different interventions. There's a lot of opportunities on both the technology side and the business model side. And it is going to have to be public-private partnerships that help win the day. Yeah, I agree. Let's talk about geopolitical events, Ukraine first and then Afghanistan. How are they impacting the water agenda? And do these events have an impact on water initiatives more broadly, indirectly or directly? So talk about Ukraine and talk about Afghanistan as two kind of, let's call them disruptions, if you will. 
Well, we're seeing in Ukraine that one of the first acts of war that occurred in Ukraine was the destruction of a dam in the Kherson Oblast that, that blocked water originally from flowing into Crimea. The Ukrainians had put it up to block the flow of water into that annexed piece. And so one of the first things the Russians did is they came in, they blew it up. We saw challenges to groundwater and a big threat to groundwater, potentially for all of Europe, from what happened at the Chernobyl plant, right? And, you know, that was under control now, but very scary time. And then we know that two-thirds of Ukrainian people live in cities where the infrastructure, including the water infrastructure, has been badly damaged, if not destroyed. So the rebuilding, it's just going to have multi-generational effects for Ukraine because water is a weapon of war. Sometimes it's the cause of war. It's that critical pathway, right, for economic development, for health, for peace, for security. And it's being attacked in Ukraine. What it's going to do is set that country back many generations, in addition to all the other things that are happening. And it's going to take quite some time to fix. In Afghanistan, I would say the water crisis is one that has been brought on by decades of conflict. Of course, they have some serious climate change issues, drought, and then poor water management. And they're back in perhaps the nation-building phase, if we're being generous, and water is critical. Sound water management practices are critical to that nation-building phase. More broadly, Dan, I would say the direct consequences is that budgets will be affected because of war and because of poor management, and it takes the focus off of building long-term resilience for our water resources, which are key to the survival of Afghanistan and Ukraine, all of Europe, the world. It's sad because it sets us back many generations and it's very unnecessary. What are some parting thoughts that you have, Monica? It's a big challenge. It's multi-sectoral. It's a long-term issue. It's pressing. What are your messages you want policymakers and other stakeholders to take away from this conversation? My main message would be to really upweight the importance of water, to understand its ubiquitous nature in everything that we do our entire lives, and to prioritize investment in sound water management practices, and then to shift thinking toward this idea of net water positive. We have the technology now. We have the data. We have everything but the will and the leadership to make net water positive a reality. And that's the direction that we need to go. Great. Monica, thanks so much. This has been wonderful. Thanks for making the time today. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 